This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to Rand. I'm Susan Marquis, Dean of the Pardee Rand Graduate School and Vice President of Emerging Policy Research and Methods at the Rand Corporation. It is my pleasure to introduce you to our panelists tonight. Dr. Ian Coulter is a senior health policy analyst at the Rand Corporation, where he holds the Samueli Institute Chair in Policy for Integrative Medicine. He has over 30 years of experience in investigating complementary and alternative medicine. Dr. David Eisenberg is the Executive Vice President for Health Research and Education at the Samueli Institute, a nonprofit research organization supporting the scientific investigation of healing and its role in medicine and healthcare. Dr. Eisenberg served as the founding director of the Osher Research Center at the Harvard Medical School and was the founding chief of the Division for Research and Education in Complementary and Integrative Medical Therapies. Dr. Wayne Jonas is the Samueli Institute's President and Chief Executive Officer. He served as the Director of the Office of Alternative Medicine at the National Institutes of Health and has had a distinguished career as a student, practitioner, and researcher of both conventional and complementary medicine practices. Dr. Alan Fremont is tonight's moderator. He is a natural scientist at the RAND Corporation. Dr. Fremont has extensive experience working with healthcare delivery systems and research projects that address gaps in healthcare and health outcomes. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. Good evening and, and thank you. Um, I'm not only honored to be here, but I am really happy to be here. This is. About two years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, metastatic lung cancer, and um, I'm a conventional medical doc, and what actually proved to be some of the most valuable stuff initially and throughout the course of this is actually complementary care that I got, and um, trying to figure out how you do that, how you bring that all together with your regular care has been and continues to be a, a, an interesting journey, so I'm really looking forward to what we're, we're going to hear. The way we're going to set things up tonight um, is we're going to start off and the four of us are going to have a discussion and, and we really want you to feel like you're part of that discussion. We're going to ask you to hold off to, on your questions until after this part. There will be about a 25-30 minute period for question and answer. We're going to, because of time, we're going to go through some topics pretty quickly and again, please, if there's something um, you want to add to the discussion or you have a question, uh, please you know, jot it down and, and you'll, you'll have a chance at the end. If, um, and then um, you know, we're, again, going to try to cover there's, We could spend hours here, um, and we'd love to, but we're going to keep this to about an hour, um, the first part about 25 minutes. We're going to start with a brief introduction on what do we mean by integrative medicine, and then we're going to cover a variety of topics. We're going to talk a little bit about um, what do we know about the actual use of integrative medicine or complementary medicine, how has that changed over time. We're going to talk a little bit about um, you know, what we know about the effectiveness of uh, complementary medicine or integrative medicine. Um, but I think some of the, the really the juiciest part and most interesting part of the evening is going to be getting into a discussion of um, how is it actually being not only used currently, but um, what's sort of the future of integrative medicine and to the extent it's starting to be used more widely, particularly in this era of, of healthcare reform, um, you know, what are the opportunities, what are the barriers, what can we you do to, to sort of facilitate that process. So with that, um, I'm going to ask David if you can start and um, maybe kind of give some basic definitions of, we hear about complementary alternative medicine, alternative medicine, integrative medicine. Are they similar, the same? What distinctions might you make? Um, we all share challenges with linguistic labels. And it's interesting to think about this historically. In the 80s, I was just finishing my medical training, and in fact, I was here for a few years at UCLA. 
Um, the sociologists referred to the non-orthodox treatments as the nons and the uns, non-conventional, unconventional, unproven. These were all pejorative labels. In the early 90s, uh, I did my own research in trying to survey who was using these unorthodox, unconventional therapies. I had lived in China. I had been introduced to herbal medicine, massage, tai chi, meditation. And I took a crack at a definition of these complementary alternative therapies, which was very pragmatic. It said, those therapies that are not routinely taught in U.S. medical schools (laughs) or routinely available in U.S. hospitals. And we used that to do some of the first national surveys. But I will share with you that a patient, not unlike the two people you just heard from, who had survived cancer through a combination of chemotherapy, radiation, expert surgery, and meditation, massage, yoga. I said, Dr. Eisenberg, with all due respect, let me give you my definition. Complementary therapies are those therapies that I use routinely and need to stay well, but I'm not comfortable discussing with my oncologist. (laughs) A simpler definition might have been the ones that I have to pay for out of pocket. And I think she said that. Fast forward 10 years, after the creation of the Office of Alternative Medicine, the language shifted, probably late 90s, around 2000, to the notion of integrative care. And integrative care in a nutshell, and I'm borrowing heavily from thoughts that Ralph Snyderman, the former head of Duke Medical Center, and Andy Weil, who's no stranger to this audience, said... Integrative medicine is an approach that combines the best of orthodox medicine and those complementary therapies that have some evidence base, number one. Number two, it emphasizes proactively the essential component of participatory medicine. People want to know, what can I do with my food, my movement, and my thoughts to improve my health wherever I am in the health spectrum? Number three, the doctor-patient relationship is key to success. Number four, the mind affects the response to therapy. And number five, an effort to optimize the intrinsic notion that the body can heal itself. But all of this is in concert with orthodox mainstream biomedicine. So that's my answer. That's the aspiration of integrative medicine. Got it. Thanks. Um, Ian, you, you have uh, lots of experience over, over the last few decades, too, but is, is that a good definition? Does that work for you, or is there anything you would add? Uh, not so quite good for researcher because we tend to like to know what it is we're researching, and integrative medicine is an emerging field. makes this very difficult because uh, David sort of talks in some ways about what people hope it will be. So they'd like to see this truly integrated system, and they won't call it integrative medicine. The real world, that doesn't happen very often. So historically, it meant initially just a complementary alternative medicine coming into a new kind of partnership with what we now call biomedicine or mainstream medicine. And, and those kind of partners, partnerships are all over the map. In cancer therapy, it's adjunctive therapy. So if you listen to what Susan and, and, and Alan both said to you, they both had chemotherapy, radiation, but they used acupuncture, massage, meditation as adjunctive therapy. Well, that's, that's one form of integrative medicine, but it's not, it's not true co-management of a patient. I mean, the main, uh, main therapy is still going to be chemotherapy and radiation. And at the other end, there is true integration where they're located together, they co-manage, they, they share information, they share patients. So integrative medicine at the moment uh, includes everything from some kind of relationship with CAM to truly what some people hope will become integrative medicine, and we should say that even the word integrative medicine is a bit of misnomer because the best word would be integrated healthcare because massage therapists would not normally call themselves medicine, but they're part of this picture as well. So some of the players from the complementary alternative medicine side wouldn't use the word medicine, so it really is integrated healthcare. And then more recently, we've seen uh, an application to have it account as a subspecialty of medicine. So from my point of view, having studied this and reviewed 11,000 articles on it, I can tell you at the moment 
Integrative medicine is a term that covers a lot of things, and it's very difficult at the moment to single out exactly what it is, as opposed to what people hope it will become. So, so Wayne, uh, you've act also been at this for, for decades, and you have yet, I think, a different perspective as well, but I, I wonder if you could maybe start speaking to the topic of... Um, my sense as a layperson and, and a physician as there's been a lot of increase in the use or recognition of alternative medicine at least, but can you speak to that in terms of are, are you seeing sort of greater use, greater acceptance of CAM or integrative medicine and maybe I'll talk a little bit about what that looks like? Uh, thank you, Alan. Sure. Uh, I think it depends on when you start. If you go back to the origins of medicine 3,000 years ago, it was all traditional complementary medicine. Uh, and in most of the things in the modern Western fields have de been derived from systems of medicine that have evolved from Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, Yunani, this type of thing that are uh, millennia old. Uh, the World Health Organization has documented a wide variety of use. On average, about 80% of the world's population uses some type of what we would call in the West non-mainstream medicine or alternative, not invented here, not available uh, within the mainstream. And so uh, if that's the definition you're taking, it's very widespread. And uh, if you look at the use, it fluctuates quite a bit depending upon which country you're in, depending upon the politically dominant system at the time. Uh, and depending upon the cost issues and, you know, who's controlling the, the, uh, the economic environment. Um, in more recent times within the West, there has been a, a, a slow, I would say, and steady increase in interest and use in these areas. Um, National Interview Survey has uh, documented over a number of years a gradual increase, uh, depending upon how you define it, of somewhere between 36 to 60 percent, uh, if you include prayer, uh, it goes up to 60 percent, at least in the United States. Uh, if uh, if you take out multivitamins and, and prayer, it goes down to about uh, 36 percent, and that has been steadily increasing among the population. Uh, the um, uh, the increase in the area of health care is a little bit less well documented. For example, we really don't know. Uh, how frequently, how often integrative medicine is used within mainstream hospitals. There's not been an, uh, a good survey that have really got at that, that information uh, well. Uh, the academic medical centers have certainly grown in terms of named complementary alternative medicine centers. I think about a third of them now have named centers where they're researching, educating students, uh, and delivering practice in these areas. So certainly those, those centers have, uh, have been moving in this area. Uh, uh, but what we've seen in more recent times is that large systems have started to begin to look at this. Uh, the Office of Alternative Medicine was one of the first in the world that was an official government-funded uh, program to do research in these areas. Uh, that percolated along for quite a long time. Uh, but now what we see is that as evidence gradually accumulates and we begin to sort out the wheat from the chaff, systems begin are beginning to pick out some of those practices and trying to figure out how do they integrate them, how do they insert them into this. So Samuel Institute does a lot of work with the military, for example, and they, uh, with the long wars and PTSD and traumatic brain injury and chronic pain, have been looking uh, for alternative approaches and have decided to adopt many of those. So, for example, we're working with them now to try to facilitate the in, uh, implementation of acupuncture, uh, for pain management across all of the integrative medicine centers. Uh, uh, in fact, not even in the integrative medicine centers. They want to teach every medic how to do acupuncture so that they can deliver it on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a remarkable change, actually, in recent times in, in, in these areas. And so how do you actually do that? The question has shifted uh, from, you know, does it work? Uh, is it effective? Is it all placebo, which are still there? Those are important questions for certain areas. To how do you actually make it available uh, to people who can't just, uh, who, who maybe not be able to afford it, who are part of the mainstream population uh, in these areas? So, so I, we're, we're going to get back to the, the point of how do you actually make it available. Um, I wanted to give David and Ian a chance to jump in here a little bit. And, um, I wonder if maybe two kind of related questions. Um, David, in, in terms of what you're seeing in actual hmm. practice, um, whether you're talking about working with, say, you know, primary care clinician specialists, um, 
is the acceptance of alternative medicine, I, I mean, are you seeing a, a, a huge shift in that? Um, or are we seeing sort of this growth because of demand? Is this, you know, are people, is this sort of a fad that we're seeing increases? Is it sort of a marketing gimmick or? Um, there have been four national random surveys since 1990. All of them have shown more than a third of U.S. adults routinely using one or more of these therapies to treat their most serious illnesses. The last three surveys have shown out-of-pocket expenditures of 30 to $40 billion. They continue to show that 70% of patients don't tell their doctors about it. It's interesting why they don't. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, apropos of, you know, this is a retrospective. Wayne and I and Ian have been at this for 25, 30 years. To think that the NIH now spends close to half a billion dollars a year on research across all of its centers and institutes, to think that the military is figuring out where, when, and how to insinuate this, often without enough evidence necessarily to validate it. it. The realization that every intern and resident in the United States now asks patients routinely, are you using any herbs or supplements, and actually has to do that to pass accreditation code. These are sea changes. I don't think there's any going back. And the fact that more than... The, the most utilization is among <clears throat> the most educated, most well-off, often at the expense of very vulnerable populations who use complementary therapies in exploit, exploitative situations where they don't know any better, better and they don't have access to conventional care. I don't think this is a fad. <clears throat> I think that's one of the issues we've put to rest. Um, I think the... Uh, I, I've lived my adult professional life in a very academic conservative place, Harvard. There's not the reflexive, <clears throat> it cannot work, therefore it does not work. But there's still remnants of, I don't believe it, it's not a, you don't have a plausible mechanism, which is often true. Will it save money or cost money? Should I let my... I, I think the antagonism and the, the notion for many of us in this field that if you looked at this field the act of inquiry was an act of advocacy, that you are really negotiating with the enemy is no longer as apparent. But it's still slow going. <clears throat> and jumping ahead to later in the conversation, the value proposition still remains to be clarified. But I don't think it's going away. So, and just that, that actually fits very much, David, with, with my experience. I... Um, despite being somebody who believed in complementary medicine along with uh, Western medicine, it was very uncomfortable when I first met my oncologist. Um, I actually, you know, had made the decision to do complementary care, actually had a wonderful rash that was a sign of good therapy, but it was, it was very awkward. And, and to be honest, you know, even um, as I was trying to understand, you know, where, what are the options? Are there really good integrative systems out there? I'd see um, it have that, that a name or the institution would advertise it, but it did seem to vary across practitioners um, or the, the extent that it was actually working in the organization. Again, it varied a lot, and, and I felt like I had to sort of tiptoe and, um, around certain providers. But um, Ian, in your research and experience, is, is that a is, is that sort of something you're seeing across a lot of systems or... Um, is that a typical experience? I suppose if you study a thing long enough, you get to see some changes occasionally. But I, I started in 1975 in the medical school at the University of Toronto studying chiropractors, and uh, my colleagues lobbied to have the study stopped and actually told me I had no business ever starting it. Um, and even 20 years ago, um, it was inconceivable that chiropractors would be in the VA and the military. Now they're throughout the VA. There's hundreds of them. I mean... And that's in a 20-year period. So, you know, the old saying, are you more amazed by how things change or how they stay the same? I would say on some levels, it's some... I mean, I remember doing a study in Alberta where the chiropractors could take the patient out to the car park, treat them, bill for it, and take them back into the hospital when they're outside the door. <laughs> um, I mean, some of these stories are just outrageous. And when you think about that, the only one who paid the price of that was the patient. So this 
We've had for 100 years two systems, two parallel systems, and they weren't talking to each other. And uh, so as a researcher, I sit now and I see, and, and I'll, I'll make a pitch for oncologists, I guess, because one of the most staggering changes for me is oncologists and the other is pediatricians. Both of those groups historically, oncologists tend to see anyone who offered CAM for cancer as a snake oil salesperson. It was, it was quackery. And I think for uh, pediatricians, they felt that an adult can make a decision to use CAM, and that's fair enough. You shouldn't inflict it on children, since there's no evidence of its effectiveness. You can go to UCLA now, and you can go to pediatric oncology, and I can tell you they're using CAM. You know? so, so I'd have to say that one of the things... And now, why did that happen? And I'll just make a short footnote. David published a study in the 90s, or two studies from Harvard, and he established what I call the, the Eisenberg principles. He established three things. One, he established how many of the population were using CAM. Then he established, as you heard, that it went up from 1904 to 97, it increased. So not only were a lot of people using it, more people were, every year were using it. Secondly, he did another great thing, is he showed how much money people were spending. And thirdly, he actually showed that they weren't telling their, their physicians or their institutions about it. So you've got three principles. A lot of people are using it. There's a lot of money there. It's all out of pocket, and they're not telling us about it. And a lot of institutions responded immediately, some in terms of making money, let's get a piece of the action, and some because, well, if our patients aren't telling us about it, we're not providing good quality care, we need to know about it, so we should have a dialogue, and if they're using it, wouldn't it be better if we were partners with them? And then the other was just a recognition that a revolution had occurred, and either you become part of it or you're not. So, so I would say that the growth, and, and in the military at the moment, I'd say the military and the VA is sort of the cutting edge in a way. I'm just blown away by how quickly it has happened in the military. Chiropractors are throughout the military now, and I can tell you now it's probably not going to reverse. So as a researcher, what I want to know is what they're doing and what kind of outcomes they get, but I can tell you they're there. And 20 years ago, they wouldn't have gone inside the door. So I would say that there's a momentum, and David documented in the 90s, I think it's continued, and it seems very unlikely to me now that that will be reversed that I think what you're going to see is more and more CAM providers forming partnerships, relationships, and being in institutions where we wouldn't have seen them before. And I think uh, more and more patients will have the ability to have both providers and may even get them under the same roof. That's still happening, but that's a bit slower, I think. Okay. And uh, Wayne, you know, uh, you're often dealing with um, you're dealing with a lot of different stakeholders, including some of the, the policymakers and so forth. But as you're working with uh, different kinds of organizations or even policymakers, can how um, to the extent that you are seeing uptake of CAM or moves towards integrative medicine, um, is that happening based on evidence? Are they actually starting to see? A, I mean, is there a value proposition? that they're often talking about in terms of cost-effectiveness? Well, there's always the hope that policy is based on evidence. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons we actually helped to start the center here at, at, at RAND is to do good evidence around policy. Uh, I think if, uh, no matter what you think of the current Affordable Care Act, uh, I think one thing it did shine light on is that... Uh, is that um, uh, health was not improving and our system was not very well integrated. Uh, it was wasting a lot of uh, money uh, and uh, it wasn't really producing health. Uh, now, we know that the healthcare system actually doesn't produce health, that only about 10 to 20 percent of the health measures actually are produced by that, and most of that occurs outside of the healthcare system. Uh, and so the question is how do you integrate one's own personal health behaviors, uh, self care aspect, health promotion components? Uh, into a regular lifestyle, which occurs mostly outside of the healthcare system, uh, that focuses primarily on on disease. Uh, you know, the healthcare system is really a triple oxymoron, in my opinion. Uh, it's, it's it's not creating health anymore. Used to, okay. Uh, it doesn't provide a lot of care. When my dad was uh, uh, dying from a stroke uh, in the hospital, uh, it was very difficult for him to get cared for. Uh, and it's not a system. 
So I had to be there to sort of integrate his communication between his primary care practitioner, his neurologist, his neurosurgeon, his oncologist, <coughs> and the VA system that he had just come from. Uh, and I, I hate to think uh, someone who didn't have my ability to maneuver in those systems might face, and they face it every day. And I think that this is the light that's really been shown on, on the, the dysfunctional system that we have that was very, very effective 100 years ago when we had acute diseases and we needed to identify a cause and eliminate the bacteria uh, or, or deliver uh, and treat a surgical problem that could be corrected that way. But we've now pushed that sort of end-stage management, rapid, late-stage management system into chronic illness, and it's not working. And so I think the policy change that's needed is not around necessarily health care insurance reform, which is largely what the Affordable Care Act addresses, but it's about how do you create a health creation or health promotion system within the culture and with the country. And we were involved in, uh, in trying to insert some things into the Health Reform Act, uh, wrote something called the Wellness Initiative for the Nation, which looked at the whole issue of creation of health and how do you do that. Uh, and one of the things that it did that I hope will eventually get some uh, traction is it created the National uh, Prevention Strategy, the National Prevention Council, which is a 17-agency health policy group of which Health and Human Services is one agency. Uh, I think that would allow for us to look at health in all policies, education, economics, um, uh, the housing industry, uh, as well as health care. Uh, and I think then we'll really be addressing the issue of health, which is the hope in integrative medicine, but is still, I think, undocumented as to whether these kinds of practices are actually going to produce that uh, in so, these areas. So it, that, that notion of whether these kind of practices are going to produce some sort of impact, um, the other hat I wear is I'm a health services research researcher, and, and right now all the pretty much everybody talks about um, the system we have isn't working. We're looking at there are some evidence-based practices out there, conventional practices. Those sort of are being, you know, they're working in isolation, but not everybody's using them. But we're seeing a lot of um, openness and really a, a movement among the healthcare systems, the health plans, the large groups, the providers, are really experimenting and looking for things that are um, maybe not only cost-effective, but actually you know, by expanding the care team, maybe adding different people to the care team or um, certain kind of practices, chronic care, self-management, all those things sort of, they're, they're starting to look at not just the savings of, you know, or the clinical impact on disease, but across a variety of different kinds of outcomes and, and parameters. I'm just wondering if, if you guys, we, we don't have a lot of time, but both David and Ian, if you can speak to a little bit of, from either a clinical effectiveness or sort of where you're seeing this stuff having impact on savings or the experience of the patient. Do, do, we, do we have any good examples? What else do we need to know about that? And maybe, David, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, so one point of fact that I know has been a frustration for Wayne, Ian, and myself, <clears throat> most of NIH's money has gone to the mechanistic evaluation of individual complementary therapies. What is acupuncture? How does it work? When is it safe? What's the mechanism? How does this herb work? Can you make it reproducible? What's the mechanism? What's the molecule? The NIH has not been in the business of figuring out whether access to a combination of both complementary and integrative therapy from a well-trained team, number one, works any better, and number two, increases or decreases cost. And you might say, well, why haven't they done that? because the NIH is not chartered to do cost-effectiveness research. <clears throat> the Agency for Healthcare Quality is, which is now being threatened by a Republican Congress or House to be defunded completely. But there has been almost no research <clears throat> in the question you raised of whether a team that is a composite of both conventional and complementary providers when trained to work well, and I would say on a horizontal plane, not with the doctor as the captain and the acupuncturist as the adjunct, but as a horizontal team where everybody passes at the right moment. We've done very little research in that area. <clears throat> I think 
You know, there's a saying, uh, an economic crisis is a horrible thing to waste. It may actually be the moment where we have the opportunity to begin to align incentives and move away from fee-for-service for everything we do to you to, okay, how are we going to take better care of people? And we're already doing this with congestive heart failure and diabetes and cancer. There are now centers with teams. Mm -hmm. So the last theme is picking up on something you said. You know, we invented primary care in the 70s at a time when it was a radical view to have a physician work with a nurse, work with a social worker who worked with a psychiatrist. That was crazy talk. And Robert Wood Johnson said, why don't you show me what that looks like? The geriatrician said, you need five new specialties to deal with older people. I would argue that sort of, if you take a 50-year view, we're at this new era where you need people in all of the orthodox specialties, plus all of the CAM disciplines, plus a focus on prevention, nutrition, food, exercise, mind-body techniques. That's the future. That's what the Institute of Medicine looked at when it saw through the lens of integrative medicine what comprehensive care might look like. But we have no funding agency to do that. I think it's going to have to come from the private sector, the military, and foundations. Okay, and Ian, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll answer very quickly because we're only short time. Yes. Um, whether integrative medicine is a good thing or not is still an open question for me. But but I think it's an exciting one, and if I look at the uh, the fact that I made the point before that I think that the conflict between the two parallel systems only hurt patients, then it seems to me it's a promising start to at least have two parallel systems talk to each other and maybe enhance the care of, the, of their patients. So. It looks to me potentially very exciting and maybe potentially cost-saving and so on, but we don't know the answers to that. And, and what I would point out to you at the moment in the United States, integrative medicine is totally dependent on philanthropy. You heard about Henry and Susan, but there are only two of many philanthropists in this country that are, are funding. You go to most of the centers, they either survive like David did on research grants at Harvard, or they... Kit Huey, who's in the audience, has an East-West Center, but he has a combination of those things, and then philanthropy. Those philanthropists eventually will take their money and go home. I hope they don't take that too literally, but they will, but, uh, because it's not sustainable. It's not economically sustainable. So eventually, what well, David's pointed out, that they have to find an economic model that's sustainable. CAM has been sustainable on fee-for-service, so people pay for it out of the pocket, and you have to assume that since people did that, it had value. People aren't, unless you want to tell me they were stupid, uh, people don't pay for things they don't get something benefit out of. So you have to say that, uh, at least with CAM, the public has quite clearly demonstrated that it has value to them. And the challenge will be, I think, for integrative medicine about how we find an economic model to advance it. And hospital-based ones, and there's some here have had ones that failed in the audience, will know that hospital-based ones are really struggling unless they have philanthropists. So... I think it's potentially exciting. I think it's got a great future, I think. And we want to know what outcomes it gets, and we would like to do the economic analysis. But just to point out to you why ENIH doesn't fund that economic stuff, apart from the rule in America, you're not allowed to use that economic analysis to make policy decisions. But apart from that, because every other country does it, but, but apart from that, one of the reasons is the, the, the National Center for Company Alternative Medicine, NIH, cannot be seen to be uh, proselytizing integrative medicine. They can research it, but they can't do, uh, do research that would advance it. That's not what they're there for. They might be able to look at whether it's cost-effective, but they can't be doing the kind of research or the sort of support that David's talking about. So NIH is probably not going to fund that kind of research, and that's, that's going to be a real challenge. Okay. One, I promised, Wayne, one final <coughs> one-minute comment, then we're going to jump so, into question and answer. So one minute, and I want to be a lot more provocative than these folks are right here. I, di I actually disagree with this very much. I don't think we need models where the conventional system is working nicely alongside the complementary medicine system and they talk to each other. We have a broken system that is not going to be able to deal and is not able to deal with chronic disease in this country. And it's gonna, there is a tsunami of aging population, and the health is not being created by this area. And complementary medicine is just one small part of that, and it's an open question as to whether it's going to actually be able to address that. But we have a system that pays for late-stage, end-of-life care 
after we've watched the train coming down the track for 20, 25, 35 years, and then dumping tons of money at the end of of the issues. Integrating a little complementary medicine into that system is not going to change that. We need a radical revision that focuses on prevention, health promotion, and creates a wellness system in this area. To the extent that complementary medicine... To the extent that complementary medicine can do that, then great, it has value. Uh, if it can't do that, then it shouldn't be part of the system, or we're just going to add it on top of a broken system, and that will increase costs. We need By the to way, substitute. Wayne, I don't the think we disagree with you at all. I completely okay. agree with that. Okay, so that'll so, open it up. Hopefully, so how do you really feel. No, um, all right. So let's let's go op- open up, and, and if we could, kind of, we're going to continue this discussion as we can. But go ahead and um, we'll start here in the front. What is the role, positive or negative, of the major stakeholders today, particularly the AMA, medical schools, and big pharma, in A, either holding back the advancement of integrative medicine, and B, in the future of moving it, moving it forward? Thank you. Well, I'll make a very short answer. I think you left out the most important one, that's corporations. I think the best hope is corporations, and and remember, it was corporations that forced the revolution of managed care. Anyway, when Lee Iacocca said, "I'll take Ford to Canada and make my cars there," so I, I think corporations is the is the party, the driving force, the economic driving force, that are more likely, and they are doing it, to look at integrative medicine and start demanding it in in their things. I don't see, well, the AMA has never been in the forefront of most revolutions, so I don't see them being the forefront of this one, and they haven't been. In fact except for the court case with the Wilkes trial, they would still be stopping it. Um, so I, I, and, but you're right about the stakeholders. There's lots of stakeholders. But I, I'm, prag- I'm a pragmatist at RAND. We tend to be... It's got to be someone with money. <laughs> quite blunt about that. That's what it's got to be. It's got to be funded, and although Wayne's vision is very nice, it could be increase the add-on costs incredibly with no evidence that it would do anything downstream. And so as a hard-nosed RANDite, I want to know, before I have all those add-on costs... Are we going to see a, a benefit? I think we would. I agree with Wayne on that. But David? Sure. Those who have had an invested interest in the current system are going to resist it tooth and nail. Okay? Uh, if you have a low-cost, drugless approach to pain treatment, for example, uh, do you think that the pharmaceutical companies are going to be interested in supporting it, doing research on it in these areas? Uh, the research that's gone into acupuncture, for example, uh, in three-arm randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials have, has demonstrated that it's more effective than what we currently do for chronic back pain, osteoarthritis, neck pain, headache. Um, what do we do with that information? Okay? Uh, how do we build a system that can deliver that uh, it's going to have to substitute for what we currently do. So somebody's going to have to win and somebody's going to have to lose. And those that currently have a lot to lose are going to try to resist that. So. Um, I, I, I agree with you in some ways, but at least what we're seeing in um, other arenas, including with some non-traditional types of care, is um, right now, like no other time before, there is a receptiveness if you are able to demonstrate and develop not just you know a given practice, but integrating it into models of care, um, part of the care team, and you can start to demonstrate some of the impact in a variety of ways. Um, there, there are there is a lot of um, systems that are experimenting with that. So there are going to be some stakeholders that resist this, but part of it is, I mean, at least in my experience, a lot of what's actually going on in the value is, is sometimes hidden from view of a lot of the decision makers, policy makers. Um. But what are the systems that are doing this? Uh, Fifteen years ago, the NIH consensus conference, which you were all at and, and we, we set up, demonstrated that acupuncture was effective for post-operative pain and nausea. How many people here who've had surgery recently have had that offered to you in the hospital? Mm-hmm. Okay? Right. Fifteen years. It's not an issue of evidence for this particular a case. It's an issue of delivery in those areas. So who's actually delivering it? The military is. Why? Because they don't have the same vested interest and they have a huge need and demand in those areas. So that kind of, uh, of, of change is what's going is, is to be needed in there yeah. uh, in, in to look at that. And that requires policy research and economic issues and it requires training, feasibility aspect, a lot of what RAND does in terms of health services. Uh, other questions? We, we have a question in the front. Thank you for your excellent presentations. I 
spent my career in the legal profession, but I have a my special affinity. Excuse me. <laughs> my condolences. I have a special affinity for for your profession, in part because I served uh, years ago in my youth as vice chairman of a hospital in Pennsylvania, and through that developed uh, a special interest in this subject. At the same time, I was on the board of the Atlantic Legal Foundation, uh, which I have served as chairman for the past 15 years or so. One of the things the Atlantic Legal Foundation has done is trailblaze in the area of combating junk science in the courts, fostering sound science, if you will. Uh, the trilogy of cases decided by the U.S. Supreme Court are predicated on uh, amicus briefs submitted by the Atlantic Legal Foundation. Question being, how do you see alternative evidence or integrated uh, uh, complementary uh, health care following, following in that spectrum of sound science vis-a-vis -vis junk science, recognizing that the U.S. Supreme Court has now said that in order for scientific or medical evidence to be admitted into the courtroom, it has to be peer-reviewed based on, upon an accepted methodology, etc. cetera. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. David, why don't you take a question? Um, you know, the Institute of Medicine, which is part of the Academy of, Medical, Academy of Sciences of the United States, did a review of the field of complementary and alternative medicine in the United States and published it in 2005. And their number one conclusion was complementary and alternative medicine needs to be subjected to exactly the same level of scrutiny as all of other interventions. And you're looking at three people who have spent their entire careers saying there should be no different scientific level of playing field here. Things either work or they don't. We either understand them or we don't. There's a mechanism that's plausible or there's not. It's cost-effective or it's not. Fortunately, we now have 50 medical schools throughout the United States that have research components as well as clinical and educational components that are trying to applaud, apply standard rules of scientific evidence and inquiry and fortunately, there's an open discussion now, whereas 20 years ago, nobody talked about it. So I think we've moved in a wonderful forward direction here. But I don't think you'll have anybody here say we should negate the scientific rules of inquiry. They may need to be broadened and expanded, but that's progress, too. So rest assured, that's not a problem. But just two people. caveats, right? One is that don't make the mistake, first of all, I'm rather staggered about, you know, they actually know what science is. I trained the philosophy of science under Karl Popper, and I can't tell you exactly what the definition of science is. But anyway, put that aside. We always give you a bit of questions at Rand. But um, the thing that I would say to you is just keep in mind two things. One, the total budget of NCAM is 0.4% of the NIH budget. 30% of the public uses it. They spend 0.4% of the NIH budget investigating it. So the lack of so-called good science about CAM is because up until quite recently, the only people funding CAM were CAM themselves. Medicine didn't fund its own research. You did. The taxpayer did. So you've got to be careful that the lack of evidence isn't taken to mean no sound scientific basis. It's not the same thing. So I, but the three of us will all agree uh, our life is about developing rigorous methodology that's appropriate to the investigation of CAM. And much of this, the rigorous methodology that's used for for pharmaceutical industry and so on, is not appropriate for investigating this. So if you take the fact that that means a wide range of methodology, all of which are rigorous and scientific, we'd say yeah, we'd totally agree with you. Yeah. Wayne? Yeah, I think that's, you know, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? I think doing good sound science is the only way to do that. Uh, one of the first studies the Institute did was a DARPA-funded study seeing if uh, a claim that had been uh, made by a very prominent scientist in France was actually true. Could you digitize electromagnetic effects and produce a biological issue? We showed you couldn't. Okay? Didn't work. Uh, done a number, have a list of negative studies in these areas. That's part of good science. At the same time, what do you do with a study like what has now been replicated in a number of areas with acupuncture? in three-armed placebo-controlled studies in which the benefit, the pain improvement that occurs from acupuncture is almost double what we get in conventional medicine and yet is incrementally better, if any better, not statistically better than its own sham, its own placebo. What do you do with that information, okay? You can say it's, it's only a placebo, but it works a heck of a lot better than what we're doing, okay? All right? So... 
That's good science. It, ha it produces a policy dilemma in those areas, and that's the way we have to approach it and sort through those things. I have a question to the speaker's right. Okay. Uh, setting aside the almost insurmountable difficulty of constructing a study of complementary and orthodox medicine that is evidence-based and not anecdotally based, I would like to respectfully offer this distinguished panel a model for identifying the players and possibly going forward constructively. I give my screenwriting students a simple model for analyzing a screenplay. Who are the main characters? What do they want? What keeps them from getting it? And how is this resolved? Well, it's pretty easy to plug in big pharma, big insurance, their lackeys in Congress. I'm sorry, I use the term advisedly. And orthodox medicine and complementary medicine. What do all those players want and how do they get it? And the big unknown, of course, is the dollar sign. The gentleman mentioned there'll be winners and losers. Supposedly, the winner should be the people. Over to you. I think we should have a great TV screenplay. <laughs> so We should take all the proceeds and pour it back into integrative medicine research. <laughs> yes, I would. Um, I think one of the stakeholders I'd have put first is the public. I mean, we're, this is a poly institution that does, we do policy research for the benefit of the public. That's what RAND's about. It's our mission. So I'd say the primary stakeholder is the public first. And I think what you need to ask is what is in the public interest here? And then I think you need to figure out if that's the case, then what we do in terms of creating that. So apart from anything else we've said, I, I would say that if in the ultimately integrative medicine is in the public interest and to the public benefit and can be shown to be that, that then the real challenge from a policy point of view is how do we develop those stakeholders to put in place policies that make it happen? Yeah. I, I'd just like to, to play on that, and I'd, I'd suggest we take that a little further and say it's actually the patient in healthcare. And this is why the term patient-centered medical care has, has arisen in these areas. Um, we don't bring the patient into those decisions and ask them, what type of evidence do you want? I remember years ago, a wonderful double-blind randomized uh, study uh, showing, uh, well, a non-blinded randomized study showing open surgery with laparoscopic surgery for hernia repair was done, and they measured all the proper outcomes that policymakers wanted. Uh, and then later on they did a qualitative study, which Rand is, uh, is uh, very good at, and asked the patients what would make you choose one treatment over another, an open or a laparoscopic uh, surgery. Guess what 70% of the patients said was their decision factor? Not pain, not recovery time, not costs. Huh? Outcomes, what type of outcome? Size of incision, no. <laughs> it's hard to guess, isn't it? You've got to ask the patients at the beginning. Huh? Pain, no. What's that? Sure. Not sure what that is. But Race, ethnicity. Race and ethnicity. Cultural. Well, what, what benefit were they saying 70% of the patients wanted? You're getting there. <laughs> okay, 70% of the patients said, I don't care which procedure I do as long as I don't have to do it again. <laughs> Recurrence. Recurrence. They didn't measure that. They didn't power the study on it. They didn't pay for the, 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 the issues on that. That could only be gotten from qualitative research in those areas. So how do you bring the patient back into the middle of patient-centered care? I want to invite you to a meeting we're going to have about that on November so you can ask the question you just and I can't resist making a footnote because you heard uh, Mary Hardy introduced before. Mary and I went to the Bahamas to study a, a CAM treatment for cancer, and we're measuring outcomes. Well, believe it or not, we're doing this for the National Cancer Institute. They refuse to accept longevity as an outcome. <laughs> and, and I remember talking to one of the women. She said to me, 
And I had to say to her, what's your tumor doing? Have you been tracking it? Has it shrunk? Has it disappeared? And she said to me, Ian, I don't give a damn what my tumor's doing. I've seen my son get married. I have three beautiful grandchildren. The tumor can do what it likes. Well, believe it or not, they wouldn't accept longevity as an outcome. We had to show that the tumor had either shrunk or disappeared as the outcome measure. And that's the point that I think Wayne's making as well. We, we have time for one last question, and it is here in the center. Pressure. Uh, <laughs> pressure. Um, my name is Linda Klein. I work at the Biller Patient and Family Resource Center at City of Hope. And uh, no disrespect to the gentleman in the front, but I actually left my law career to follow my heart and go into cancer care. And um, on a much smaller level, my, my, I guess I'm asking for advice on we currently have yoga and music therapy and meditation and, uh, and massage at City of Hope. And my uh, challenge, our challenge is how to incorporate that into the continuum of care. And so today and tomorrow and next week, any advice you have on how to obtain buy-in from the physicians um, and also to empower our patients to, to demand that they, um, they, they discuss that with their medical providers as well would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Well, first of all, you know, I... I'm, I'm glad you were the last question. Because, <laughs> you know, you exude the future. Yeah. You left a law career to help children with cancer, and you now begin to view what's possible. And just because we can't pay for it now, and just because it's not yet required, doesn't mean your generation won't demand it. You know... My former CEO of my hospital used to say, the market is never wrong. And people would say, what do you mean? And he'd say, it's never wrong. It, it's the market. If people of your generation, not mine, said, no kid will be treated for cancer without having access to massage therapists and dietary counseling and psychotherapy and the kind of mental health issues that are now so difficult to get, in addition to the latest and greatest you will make the change because everyone who's a parent will say that's just the way it is now. But the fact that you left a law career to do this at City of Hope, which now has yoga and tai chi and massage, is unbelievable compared to where Wayne and I and Ian started 25, 30 years ago. So you give us hope. We can't pay for it overnight. It's not all going to be on the backs of philanthropists. It can't be. The society will have to say... Comprehensive health care a generation from now and two generations from now has to look different. It has to be more preventative, as Wayne said. It has to have access to some of these therapies some of the time. They're not all cost-effective. Some don't work. There are quacks. We have to clean that up. But you'll paint a picture of what better health care looks like. So thank you for asking the question and doing what you do. If we value it, we have to pay for it. And we have to measure it and measure its value if we're gonna, if the system is actually gonna adopt it, and that's where economic research comes in there. Um, we like compassion, right? But we pay for cholesterol measurement, okay? If we wanna have compassion in the healthcare system, we need to measure it, we need to value it, and then we need to integrate it in, so in those areas. Thank you again for the question. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, Visit us online at www.rand.org events.